You are listening to The Interactome, a podcast by a group of young researchers who want to connect you to the world of science by sharing their stories and perspectives. Just in case their bosses are listening, they want to remind you that the opinions expressed here are their own. They also want to remind you not to take anything they say as medical or professional advice, as they are not doctors. Not yet, anyway. Stay tuned about that. And, without further ado, welcome to the Interactome. Hello, and welcome back to the Interactome. I'm one of your hosts today. This is Natalie. So happy to have you guys. If you're returning, if you've listened to an episode before, um, we've got a really great conversation coming up that um, I'm looking forward to. But first, I'll turn it over to um, my other host, and then uh, he'll introduce our guest. Uh, hi, I'm Sam. I'm the other host of this episode. Uh, today's returning host is actually an old friend of mine from grad school, uh, Youngman Park, who, if you remember from our uh, so far only mini episode on Pi Day, um, uh, he is a mathematician and I'll let him actually properly introduce himself, but, uh, you know, we're happy to have you back. Thanks guys. Yeah. It's nice to be back. Um, yeah, but I don't know how much I should say, I guess. Right. So in terms of background, um, well, right. So I'm a, I'm an assistant professor in, in math at the university of Florida. And in terms of background, I'm, I'm very applied math in the spectrum from applied to pure math. And my focus is in, in with, within biology, and so I look at subcellular processes, so things like molecular motor dynamics and how materials are transported within cells. And then on the neurosci- neuroscience side of things, I look at how oscillating neurons in, in their membrane potential, which we'll actually I'll talk about in a little bit, um, how these neurons, when they oscillate in particular in, in regions that control rhythmic movements, like walking and breathing and swimming and chewing, um, how they're just how they work, period. Um, and there's a, there are a lot of open questions there. So that's there you go. So for this episode, we're going to be digging into Youngman's background a little bit. And um, co- like, I guess, can I call it computational biology? Is that accurate? Yeah. Cool. It, it, I'm glad I'm right. Um, we're going to be learning uh, using his knowledge on computational biology to talk a little bit about biological neural networks. Um, This might be something that, um, you know, you as our listeners have heard of, but we're going to dive into it a little bit more. So I think we can start off with just kind of a general overview explanation on what a biological neural network is. Right. So we've heard a lot about the AI stuff with artificial neural networks, but my focus is quite a bit um, in the neuroscience side of things has to do with biological neural networks. So they, these biological neural networks, I mean, the, the human brain is a very fine example of that. Um, really any brain is a good example of that. And if you zoom in far enough, you can see the individual units that make up the, the, the brain and in fact, the entire nervous system of, of many animals, and they consist of neurons. And individual neurons, we know a surprisingly large amount of things about individual neurons at this point, because on the experimental side, you know, if we wanted to understand the brain 100 years ago, we had to start by looking at the smallest constituent pieces, which are the the neurons. And theory tends to follow, in this field, it tends to follow the the biological experiments. And so over the past hundred years, we've studied neurons very closely, both in terms of experiments and um, and in terms of the mathematics and the physics behind it all. 
and we've made a lot of progress in both directions. And we're still learning a lot about neurons. But um, but yeah, that's that's been um, it's it's interesting, kind of getting to see like we're we're at this point where we're starting to learn enough about these individual units that we're as a as a field we're focusing our sh we're sh we're shifting our focus to the the question of networks. So if we have a large number of these things, or even a small number, there there are networks that are as many as dozens on the order of a dozen or a few dozen. And these are inside things like crabs that control the breathing rhythm or the digestive rhythm of crabs, um, all the way up to hundreds of millions, like like in, in many mammalian brains. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's a fascinating thing in that all of the answers that we need to are just there. You know, there's nothing magical about neurons. It's not like they, they exist half in this reality and then half in some ethereal thing that we can never reach. It's all the neurons are there and all the questions we need to, to ask are right there. But we still don't, we just basically don't know anything. Um, <laughs> we know some things, which we'll talk about. But um, does that does that work as a high level description? Oh, yeah. Description? I, I think the, uh, it's funny that you mentioned um, that we don't know anything because it's, it's funny be because it's... Uh, kind of true of a lot of science where the, the cool place to be in science is right at the edge of what we know a lot about and what we know absolutely nothing about. Uh, and so in this case, the biological perspective, you know, I mean, I think my knowledge of biology really stops once you get past one cell. Um, I'll be, you know, completely honest. Usually I know, I think about proteins. I can usually think about a few proteins together and like if pressed, I can come up with something to think about a cell. But once you get bigger than that, I'm like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> Peace. <laughs> like, um, it's really funny at the doctor's office because, like, they start talking about this. Like, okay, I know, I know, like, biology, but, like, tissue is way too complicated for me. Like, like I know. <laughs> and so it's really fascinating to see, like, how you go from one cell to, I'm assuming, at least two cells in your case. Um, and kind of how that, how that works up. So. Yeah, so I think... I'll just kind of add on top of that too to clarify when we're talking about neurons, neurons themselves are individual cells that um, you might have, you might have seen pictures of them. If you look it up, um, it, they kind of have, it looks like they have like a bunch of arms, right? They're kind of stretched out. I, I forget what part of the neuron that's called. Um, does anyone remember? Dendrite. Thank you. Dendrite. Um, dendrites all over and they use those dendrites to then talk to each other and so the neural network is a network, however big or small, of neurons talking to each other in the body. So this happens naturally, and we'll talk about this more um, later. Modern AI, some parts of modern AI and some, and some mechanisms used model this process. And there are some big differences, big similarities, um, and yeah, we'll dive into that. But I think we can kind of talk, a, kind of bake out what makes a biological neural network um beyond the neuron to back up can one neuron think what do you mean by think yeah well that i guess that's the first question we have to talk about right because we're talking about thinking machines thinking biological systems right can a neuron think because i think we, we think that our brains are a bunch of neurons and that's the part that's like you know so people make jokes about like having um, one brain cell um right. so Guilty. if i have only one brain cell can i think um so I don't, yeah, I guess we don't even need to define things. So I'll give you my opinion, right? And it's that, of course, it's, the short answer is no. <laughs> and the, the reason I say that is because 
neurons so biological neural networks first of all it's a very diverse thing i mean there are all kinds of networks that do a lot of different things but one of the most studied because it was they were so simple are are these networks that 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 are related to vision and what they do is these neurons i mean they're they're directly attached to the light sensors and this is actually in the Feynman lectures if you it's a phenomenal chapter in the Feynman lectures but they there's this there's there's this effect where if you um the if you look at the horseshoe crab, they have a compound eye. And if you shine a light with a lens just on one omatidium, one, one little part of the compound eye, you get a response in that connected neuron that you would expect. It kind of it spikes and maybe kind of uh, tapers off a little bit due to what we call adaptation. But if you shine a light, let's say on like three omatidia next to, and then shine a light on, on one close to, close, close to the three, the three have the effect of inhibiting the response from the one, okay? And so if you have, this is really hard to describe with my hands and just, just words. <laughs> so audio that is to setting. Say, yeah, like... the, the hands are gonna come through, Yagman. <laughs> so that is to say, if I have light um, shining on one portion of the amatidium, if we imagine them being arranged in like one dimension, and then on the other half of the remaining, we don't have any light shining on them. Well, if you look at the electrical responses, the response for light at the boundary between light and no light is very strong. And that response, because it's strong, it also inhibits the uh, response of the inactive omatidia. And what this is, is a, it's, a, it's, like, it's a contrast enhancing filter. So nature figured out a way to enhance the contrast of objects well oh, before, wow. you know, I mean, these are in horseshoe crabs. They've existed for a long time. So that is an example of a biological neural network. And going back to your question about can one neuron think, well, it can't even do contrast enhancement. It can't even do something fundamental like that, so something super basic. And so I think the question of thinking is just out the window. Cool. So using the horseshoe crab example, you've got the light, um, the omatidium that's reacting to the light, you see the spike. The omatidium that is not, uh, I guess, in contact isn't quite right for the light, but like receiving like the light signal, um, that is suppressed. So you get kind of like a, right. a decrease. If you're the crab, what does that do for the crab? Enhances contrast makes, visually. Exactly. Oh. Yeah, exactly. So if you think of, uh, so if you think of convolutions, um, and there's there's a thing called a contrast enhancing filter. And you can there's this is like an image a standard image processing method. Um, you you start with an image, you you run the filter, you, you do the contrast enhancement, and whatever you get out of that is is just it's a very bad approximation, but it's an approximation of what the what the crab would see. And to be a little clearer about the specific mechanisms, what the 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 connections, the lateral connections, you have one neuron for for if you look at one neuron that's connected to that omatidium, um, it inhibits nearby neurons. And and it excites like very very close by neurons. Okay, and so if you're and that's that's what gives rise to this contrast enhancing effect. And interestingly, this this lateral inhibition is something that exists. It's been found to exist throughout all kinds of biological neural networks, including the human brain. So um, lateral synaptic connections in the human brain, they're very, they're strong with very, very close neurons. They're excitatory. And then slightly farther out, they're inhibitory and then no effect further out. Um, and so they've, in, in terms of a theory, 
there's this very unfortunate name called they call it the Mexican hat coupling, which uh, doesn't sound. Yeah, too, they'll uh, rename decent, that in a few but... years. <laughs> so some people call it the sombrero connectivity, but I don't, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> there's, yeah, but <clears throat> lateral inhibition is a is a very common thing in in biological neural networks. It just sounds like it's just like a, it's just a peak. It's just like a probability distribution sort of peak sort of deal, right? Like, not probability. It's like it's like if you look at a graph, it's like of. A lot of times in um, biology, we get these things that are like distributions where you have like a thing that happens and then it happens less around it. So like in my field, it, it happens a lot where you'll, uh, if you're like, say, like look at colors in a solution the, because of math and things and science. <laughs> we don't have to because go to of optics. math. Because of math and science. Because of that, like a color is not always just one wavelength. It's like a distribution. And the farther you get from that wavelength, the less it is there. So it's like, there's these sorts of things everywhere. It's just, it's strange that they refer to it as a sombrero distribution because there's, or sombrero effect because there's a lot of other words that describe that. I was I like, think, I think what I'll also add too is, is we're looking at, you know, we've just described the neural networks um, on a really teeny tiny scale, right? But you might be thinking, dear listeners, um, why that matters um, why we care about, you know, one omatidium reacting and the other ones, um, or not, not reacting, they're both reacting, one spiking with the light and one decreasing. Um, Youngman, this is something you said earlier. It's all about adaptation. Neural networks are about inputting information, taking in information. Is that, is that what? what you meant by adaptation? Ewan? Not necessarily. It's a oh, very... Okay. It's, a, it's an overloaded word. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, adaptation in the colloquial sense would mean responding. That's know, what I meant, like adapt adapting to, to your environment. Yeah, adaptation. Sam's the biologist. He's getting confused. He's like, that's not a genetic adaptation. <laughs> well, well, like I've also spoilers. I, I've I think I've seen some talks by Youngman actually in grad school. So I, I've seen or from oh, your okay. department. So I actually do remember some of these things. Like it's coming back to me, and I think I remember adaptation being used in a very different sense in that context. So yeah. So, well, first, first note is that, yeah, when you're describing distributions, Sam, um, those, the, a lot of things are like Gaussian, like normally distributed, right? Yeah. But w when we talk about lateral inhibition, it's not just a fading out as you go further away from whatever the peak is. There's an active suppression um, around that peak. So it's, it's, you can't really think of it in terms of a probability distribution. It's, it's about excitation versus inhibition. Um, and I really, yeah, it would really help to have some kind of diagram, but... I forgot if, what a sombrero look looks up, like. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're learning. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sombreros are not like fedoras. They go down and they come back right. up. They go up. up yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a bowl. Um, yeah, but what were we... Oh, right, about adaptation. So adaptation in in the very specific conditions that I'm speaking about has to do with... A neuron that'll, you give it an input, okay, it could be like a neuron in the cortex and you have an auditory input, and let's say you keep repeating a tone in the, um, a, a sound, and this neuron will respond to it, respond to it, and the response will decrease over time, okay? And it's, that's an example of adaptation. So the big picture view would be background noise, you just get used to it. That means your brain is adapting to that background noise. Um, you know, uh, like lots of... 
lots of um, yeah, so- lots of sounds we can adapt to very easily. Um, tastes, um, some a little vision too. If you keep your eye perfectly still, you'd go blind. That's why our eyes keep saccading. But if you yeah, if you kept your eye still for a long time, um, even with the saccades, you're, you'll just start not seeing anything. If you haven't tried it, you should try it. It's a little, it's weird. Don't try that at home. Don't try that. Hey, if you're driving and listening to this, don't try that. <laughs> well, but driving, hopefully you're seeing different things. If you're driving through the middle of the desert, maybe don't do that. But yeah, uh, I'd have to you'd be hard pressed to find a desert that boring. Can I ask a quick question though? Do those adaptation, like that adaptation of getting used to background noise and those things in your environment, is that because of a neural network? It's because that is actually a bit of an open question. So we know some things. So we know that between neurons, the synapses between neurons, that they, they there's a degree of adaptation there, that the synapse will become less responsive. Oh. Um, but you can also have entire networks exhibit adaptation. So there's there are classic studies on on this, what we call deviance detection, where you 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 play one tone, one tone, one tone, um, like a, just some sound. Uh, for a very short time, like half a second, beep, 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 and then occasionally you you like ten percent of the time you have this different frequency, beep, 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 and it just sometimes you, and what you see is you can just measure brain waves, and the brain at that scale exhibits this this deviance detection. It notices that something's different, so it not only happens at that microscopic individual neural level, it happens at the whole the level of the whole network as well. That's so In cool. fact, if I may. Throw, throw in one more thing. Infants understand grammar. We're talking like f- fresh infants. I don't, that's a really fresh. accurate way to describe it. <laughs> <them>, but. <laughs> but they, you can measure brain activity from infants as they're listening to their mother speak. And when the mother includes some grammatically incorrect thing as part of their speech, the, it, there's a response in the infant's brain that, that's, that corresponds to that, 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 oh, wow. that, that difference. So it's it's like yeah where does this adaptation come from that is a very good question and it's just it's 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 at like every level and that's an open question. And I wonder too, you know, the neurons react but I but is it is it even perceivable to the person who's listening? Say you're listening to those tones beep 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 and you're listening to one maybe you didn't even pick up on the difference but you're your brain does the neural network does. oh i see so typically that's a guess i'm not the, sure if that's accurate that's a good question i think i think um generally if there is this this if the brain detects it typically like my my guess okay my my guess is that you also notice it and and i don't have like the reason why I think that is that the the response to the deviance is is significant. I mean, it's like it's a neuron that wasn't even responding before. That's just suddenly like oh, waking wow. up, like oh my goodness, you know. Or it's an entire brain region that's responding, like oh my goodness, or you know, whatever population of neurons. And um, and if you you can try that, you can you can write up a little bit of like a some Python script and like you know play these like random tone like a single tone for a while and have it ten percent of the time just like play a different tone. And you'll just you'll you'll feel something like I mean it's not just your brain noticing it it's just like whoa that was different and yeah um, so yeah in 
the the opposite is also like this kind of a similar phenomenon is kind of true that's I haven't figured out how to model where if you have noise and then there's a like let's say white noise and then there's a block of no sound, then your brain also detects that. So that would be like if if um, birds are singing, that's a that's a there's like this this thing that's kind of known that birds singing is a, a reassurance for humans. And then when they suddenly go quiet or you notice they're quiet, there's something wrong. Mm. And that's a that's a known effect. And that's an example of deviance detection. Yeah. So I've actually experienced yeah. that. Like I'll use like a white noise machine because to drown out the birds singing, actually, sometimes. Let's <laughs> go try to sleep. Um, uh, and like if it cuts out because I'll use my phone and it's not always consistent, I'll usually wake up. So like it's the same mm. sounds um less atrocious than it used to be i've been informed that my taste in white noise is um not universal but um if it cuts out then usually i'll wake up or at least i'll like you know i I'll, there's an increased likelihood of me waking up i would say it um, reminds me of um i've been exploring like new types of you know music lately and i love it there are a few songs that like i'll listen to and there are parts in the songs where everything stops right there are no instruments like beyonce has one and I can't remember the song name, Shame on Me, but it's like, da, 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 everybody on mute. And then the whole song goes quiet, even all the background instrumentals. And it feels like a beat drop to me. Like, it feels like like something else is happening, but like the absence of stuff. I'm ashamed that I, Beyonce, if you're listening, I'm so sorry. I can't remember the name of that song, but that's what comes to mind for me. Beyonce is listening. You're doing something right. So <laughs> I know. Beyonce, give us a shout out. <laughs> <laughs> Someone should add her on Twitter or something. Yeah, that'll reach her for sure. Oh yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Speaking of noise, you also mentioned like you haven't figured out how to model that. So I guess like so, I should be careful with the phrasing. So I'm I'm really speaking in, in generalities here. So we I mean we know a lot. We there are a lot of things like we know some things, right? I just don't know. We know. We we just don't. I I I don't think. I think anyone would agree if I said we don't know everything. I mean, I like that's almost a tautology. <laughs> Except so for me. A, a, like a... <laughs> Sorry, we can cut that. That was stupid. Um, oh no, no, that was good. That was good. We're keeping that in. Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, I lost my train of thought. Sorry, uh, <laughs> I'm being but, disrupted. Modeling, but right. So when it, when it comes to modeling, it's we can it's possible to generate to to create some kind of model that could reproduce that behavior um and i've i've talked to like a, a grad student friend of mine who's who had some ideas on how to model it um i just we just haven't implemented it cuz just mostly because of me but yeah there are all kinds of ideas where you can you can utilize what exists in biology and that we know from the data and then and then do something with it so maybe i could actually mention that yeah so Speaking of which, there's that, that kind of there's a there's a direct connection between what we consider today as as um, AI and biological neural networks. So, if we look at a single neuron, they they exhibit action potentials, right? You have a you have a membrane potential that's maintained by this crazy uh, electrochemical gradient, uh, lots of active pumps that push ions across the membrane. So the the ingredients of an active potential involves the movement of ions and a lot of active transport, and it's insane. And the, the mathematics of that is, has been more or less figured out. Um, but you get this active potential that, 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 that propagates. And to get that active potential, you have to push the memory potential high enough above a threshold. And then at some point, 
you get above the threshold and the active potential can propagate. And with neurons and actual biological neural networks, what you see is that you have the dendritic branch and they're designed to receive inputs. Um, 80% of our brain consists of, of a particular type of, of neuron called pyramidal neurons. But the point is these things have tens of thousands of incoming connections and each, each input is very weak, but cumulatively they can have this effect where you can, you can push the membrane above the threshold and, and fire yeah. a signal down the axon. Yeah. And just, just, um, just so like our listeners yeah. have a picture of this or like kind of show what we say action potential. I, I definitely seen this where like there's animations of a neuron and there's like a light going down it. Like that's what they're talking about. It's like, it's a traveling signal kind of thing. It's like, you'll, people make these little animations. That's like a little, like a glowing, like energy going down the neuron. It's like a, it's, it's very common. Like that's like the thing of like, Oh, the electrical signal. That's what we're talking about. With the action, action potential. And there's, cool biochemistry that makes that happen that i would love to talk about for an hour but at the end of the day there's an electrical signal that moves in a direction down a neuron and that's what an action potential is right exactly and and if you zoom out i mean we again we have like hundreds of millions of neurons that are doing that constantly all the time um and there's just this mess of complexity that we don't understand but going back to the single neuron that was more or less the understanding of people, of neurons back in the 50s, um, 40s and 50s, and maybe even earlier. Actually, one of the earliest neural models is from 1907 or so by a guy named Lepique, some French guy, and he was looking at frogs, frog legs, and making them twitch. Um, but the, the perceptron by McCulloch and Pitts, they use this very basic understanding, not basic, I mean, you know, this, this understanding, this, the principle of how a neuron has to get past the threshold to actually send a signal to design the perceptron. And that is the foundation of, of what we today call multi-layer perceptrons, which is part of deep learning. And there are other versions of this, like convolutional neural networks that, that actually do perform better in a lot of cases, but they're, you know, these, this is the start of, of modern AI with these multi-layer perceptrons. Um, people tried different things throughout the 60s and 70s, but it wasn't until the 90s and onwards with com better computing power that, that we actually started to be able to do meaningful things. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And before we get like super deep into like neurons, there's a lot of different ways of modeling them, right? So like what you're doing, you're not necessarily building perceptrons, right? In your research. Is that accurate right. to say? That's very accurate, yeah. So in my case, the neural, yeah, yeah, tons of different ways to model neurons. Oh my goodness, um, you can model them at the population level, and that actually all is also um, one of the inspirations for the the perceptron that you have. You have this sigmoid function, where with with very small or negative input values, the the output is very small, and then as you as you increase the input quite a bit, you start to saturate in your output. And that's inspired by how neurons behave. And I think, I'm sure you guys have seen that, many examples of that in biochemistry. Um, but in my case, I, I look at, I, I include a lot of these ion channels. Um, I basically model the membrane. I basically model the neuron as a point, which, which can bother some neuroscientists because neurons are really not points. Um, in, fact, it, in fact, we assume it's a sphere, which is like, you know, calling a cow a sphere, which is not accurate. <laughs> Physics. <But> it, it, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. But you know, it lets us get 
understand some things. And so we, uh, despite the, the uh, limitations, the assumptions, we can do a lot of things. I um, and then I, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, right, I'm just dying because there's always this joke about like a physics teacher going up to the board, like putting a dot on the board. He goes, what's this? And it's like, you know, it's a dot. And he goes, no, that's a piano. And then you go out, it's like <laughs> physicist <laughs> modeling something. It's just a dot. It's like a running joke. If you remember like high school physics class, like the teacher will go up and be like, you know, you were to do a diagram. It's like okay, so you know this is a this is a car. You know driving down the road. It's a point. It's like it's got a point and an arrow. Um, but you know you could learn a lot about how you know something behaves with just that oversimplification. You know I, I've certainly used that oh, yeah. in my own life. So but it's funny. It's like so in this case yeah. you put a dot on the board and you go and that's a neuron. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was a like a a weird like debate that like argument that kind of happened uh, um, in the. 2015 or so between a, a high-profile neuroscientist and a theory guy that worked in neuroscience. And it, the the arguments basically boiled down to, like, it seemed like the theory guy forgot that neurons are not points, and the experimental, like, the neuroscientist guy was just angry about that. And so they, they had a few papers going back and forth arguing this. <laughs> um, that was interesting. But anyways, yeah, I, I think of neurons as points just because what I, what I do, the principles underlying what I care about, um, they they still persist with this very simplifying the highly simplifying assumption. Uh, oh yeah, but other other things right. So perceptrons are are good models of neurons in the abstract. Um, and then there let's see. And then there's also there are different neurons like the the Lepic example. He just he just made this this equation where the you know the memory potential would just like increase forever. And you had to put a threshold and then push the the solution all the way back down, and then it would increase forever again. And that was like his his like action potential, um, so, which is super super um, high level, very phenomenological. But people still use it today to to build large networks of brains. So yeah, absolutely, tons of different ways to model. All right. So imagine that your point now is a neuron in a perceptron. How does that work? Like, what? Why is that? Uh, these thresholding, like, why does that stike start looking like a brain? Because you were also talking about thresholding with a contrast, like, detection mechanism. And, you know, I've done photo editing, and as best as I can tell, when I crank a contrast slider, I'm not, like, using a neural net so much as a simple algorithm. So, like, where is the, you know, where does this start becoming a thing that can kind of start to imitate something that looks like thinking? Yeah, that's a... That is a really good question. So first, I guess, maybe we can briefly discuss convolutional neural networks because when you're doing a contrast enhancement or Gaussian blur or you know whatever these Photoshop tools are, um, you're doing you're you're applying a a filter. That's the technical and colloquial word for it, um, and and performing in the mathematical mathematical terms, it's a convolution. And depending on the shape of the filter, so if you're if you're nice and symmetric and look like a Gaussian, you actually you, you can blur the image with that. If you have um, parts that are that go, that go negative, that that can give you contrast enhancement. Um, and when you look at convolutional neural networks, what it's really doing. So this might be getting in the weeds a little bit, but um, what what it's doing is it's trying to learn different filters. In the most, like, it's trying, it's looking at an image of a horse, for example, and then filtering it in different ways, and then trying and adjusting the filters until it's abst- until it's able to abstract all these features using the filters that that correspond to the correct classification that it's a horse. 
and it'll look at a picture of a boat. It'll it'll build different filters for that. Um, if someone works in AI, I, I apologize. This is kind of you know <laughs> like a layman's explanation because my background isn't AI. It's more um, yeah like computational mathematical biology. Um, so yeah, in the case of in the case of these tools where you're applying filters, they've already been already been chosen. But something that convolutional neural networks do is actually adjust those filters to get what you want. Okay, so like you're saying adjust it to get what you want. So the idea is like it's you put in a picture of a horse and it starts looking for horse parts or boat parts or person parts. Right. So because imagine like you know a filter can give you blur, but you can you can make you can just make up a filter that could extract um, the edges of like the right. Shat, like edges on the on the right side of objects as opposed to the left. You can make filters that that can filter out for sort of like head shaped objects, mm. you know, sort of so like sort of semi like sort of circular objects. You can you can make filters that that extract very specific things, um, and also very abstract things because these convolutional neural networks they 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 transform the image that's put in, and then they they filter it, filter it, filter it, and it this image at some point gets super super abstract. And they're trying to find abstract features. And it really is trying to find general abstract features. So in a sense, these, these things do generalize a little bit in <laughs> you know, however specific the conditions may be. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And is this process then the learning that happens with AI models? Yes. Okay. Exactly. Right. Cool. So you're trying to you're adjusting the filter. That adjusting is the learning part in, gotcha. in the case of convolutional neural networks. Okay. Um, so there's also different the others. Yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say that just explains some things because I have a face recognition thing I use for like tracking photos, and I actually just pulled it up while you were talking, and it's got faces. It's also got a 50 gallon drum, a speed limit sign, and a door. <laughs> it thinks they're faces too. <laughs> it's not very well trained. <laughs> yeah. Right. So. Yeah, that that right. There are limitations in AI, and and I think it's worth always talking about that because everyone hears about about all the the virtues of AI and how how amazing it is that, that things, and yeah, it is very very good at things. At at Not things, everything. yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, obviously, like far surpasses humans in in a lot of uh, very specific tasks. Maybe like with image recognition, or um, I'm not up to date, honestly, on on everything. But yeah, there are all kinds of metrics that, that AI can outperform the same way that computers can outperform humans with calculations or doing all kinds of, you know, rote things. Um, but in terms of limitations, and also to be fair to the AI researchers, people are thinking about how to overcome these limitations. And, and so there are ways to, to mitigate issues. But one thing would be like a, um, it's either white box or black box attack. And you can... By changing one pixel in an image, you can con confuse completely confuse a trained neural network. Oh wow! Um, oh, so, that's crazy. So actually, some because sorry to jump in, I just got excited. Yeah, no problem. Um, I was researching neural networks before this, um, especially the AI ones, because I'm like definitely a novice to the space. I'm very new to this. And turns out when you, if you're gonna input um, an image like into an AI model. Every single teeny tiny pixel is then broken down to like its smallest parts to then be given a variable to then be fed into the layers to be analyzed and to get your output. So it's crazy that one change in a pixel 
in an entire image can throw off the entire neural network process. Yeah. Yeah. The description is, is it's, I don't know if it's so to, I guess to, let's see. So yeah, each pixel is fed in, but there, so the, the reason why actually this is surprising is that people do a lot of work to not rely so much on like individual pixels. Right, these these neural networks they'll condense the image to something smaller, um, and they'll like you know they'll run all kinds of filters on it and transform it to something smaller. Um, for example, that's that's one thing that people can do, and so there's emphasis taken away from individual very specific things because again the the, the goal is to force this machine to learn general features that are specific to whatever animal. So that's why it's surprising that despite these efforts, there exists. You can you can just by probing like individual pixels and putting it into the network, you can find if you're lucky, you can find a one pixel that could just mess it all up. Um, but, oh, so it can't be any yeah. pixel; it has to be like one, and you can't necessarily figure out which one it right. is. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. In 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 yeah. So generally, yeah, it's hard to say in general, but yeah, you wouldn't a pixel won't necessarily yeah one pixel alone in general wouldn't necessarily mess things up. Okay. But um, yeah, so people do have to probe for this. Um, if they have access to the training data, that's even worse. That's that's more rare, but it's much worse because you could replace all the stop signs with something um, much more malicious with that a go forces sign. like an AI. <laughs> a go sign. A, exactly, exactly. And and then the car, this Tesla car, is just going to zoom through stop signs when it really shouldn't. For example, um, yeah. So those are limitations, but yeah, it's like uh, it's like uh, this this crazy game of cat and mouse to be fair to all the ai researchers I, like i'm aware that there are lots and lots of very very smart people thinking very carefully about this it's just that i'm not up to date on uh, the, the de- those those details and and i think it's absolutely fascinating that people took the these like a part of how neurons operate put it into a computer and just just did stuff with just just like said let's put more in and see what happens and it seems to be working really well so i i don't know who so I, I just don't know. I don't know how to answer your question, but I agree. It's a, well, it's a very good question and it's fascinating. I think to me, the question about like training data also comes down to like, I mean, I think with humans or like biological neural networks, we can still have biases. We can still be wrong, right? I mean, there's definitely, or, um, you know, you can have, I you say, oh yeah, there's like a single piece of data that's not necessarily going to poison a person's thought process. But like, I think we also all have things that will set us off or, you know, like there's certain tones like I know that people respond to. There's a reason why fire trucks sound the way they do, for example. You know, it's like there are things that will trigger neural pathways that are the equivalent of almost a single pixel, I feel like. Like, I mean, the, that like kind of shrill whining sound that a lot of alarms, sirens, and babies use, they're all the same thing. And it's not a complicated signal, right? It's just like a set of tones. But still, there, that's not to say that AI is thinking like a human right so yeah i i just kind of want to toss in that idea that like there are also things that happen with people and you can teach people the wrong information and they're going to work off of that training set and it's going to still work the same way as tossing in you know a go sign into a tesla so yeah before you go natalie i also want to mention along these lines the, the, the yeah the question of robustness is is something that i've been pretty disappointed with in AI. And it's not because research is lacking. It's just that it's, it's almost like a feature. You need so much data, at least the way that, that we've, we 
in terms of mainstream AI, that's how we that's how we train things. So much data, and so what happens when we encounter a situation where the training data hasn't encountered? You know, we have there's not enough training data for this particular circumstance. Well, the the network just does weird stuff, and this is a huge problem for self driving cars. And in fact, I, I absolutely hate how Tesla only uses cameras because their cameras alone is just not enough right now to be able to account for every possible circumstance that could come up during driving. Whereas humans and a lot of animals are actually, we don't need to be taught driving under every single circumstance, under every road condition and weather and, you know, but right now AI ha basically has to do that. We just, it just needs so much. And so maybe we can we can come back to this or not, but that's it's like uh, I guess my my kind of hope for AI is to, or and neuroscience is to figure out what the hell it is that makes 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 animals so much more robust and needs so much fewer iterations to actually learn something, right? And and to be able to adapt to new circumstances so so easily. So, anyways, I think you took us right into the main some of the main differences and. Yeah, I think that was great between um, AI neural networks and biological neural networks. Like you said, um, I guess I'll just reiterate that both, um, whether it's biological or artificial, take inputs. We've talked about this throughout the episode. That's how you receive information um, and not only just kind of this this receival of information isn't stagnant. It isn't sort of just like, oh, filling the water pitcher and then it's just going to sit there and like you kind of just do what you will with whatever the data you have. It's a, it's a constant, at least in biology. You know, I could be wrong in, in the AI sense. If you're an AI scientist, don't come for me. Um, but subscribe to our podcast if you're an AI scientist and reach out so we can <laughs> yeah. interview you. Yeah, yeah. Come anyway. on here. Tell us why we're wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> But it's, it's a constant flow of information. Um, so the system itself is always responding to new inputs. Um, and you get an output, right? You get a behavior, you get a reaction, um, whether it's you get, you know, even just like a mathematical output um, from the neural network. So I think that's how they're similar in, in kind of overall generic structure, inputs and outputs. And you've got the, the what they call the hidden layer in between. Um, so that's kind of where the magic happens, right? Where all the analytics happens. Um, but Youngman, like you were saying, like um, biological neural networks are, and hey, it's the millions of years of evolution, I'd say, are the things that has really stacked up the biological neural networks. Um, but the performance between biological neural networks and artificial neural network is, it's um, it's it's pretty uncanny. I mean, the performance. Um, and like Youngman was saying, AI needs to be needs to be given data for every circumstance. It can't if I'm okay, you get to a stop sign, you're driving the Tesla. You get to the stop sign, you stop. You know, you're slow to stop and a bus passes you and you're taking in that information. It's like, okay, I don't want to collide with another car. But you're taking that information as like, I I don't want to collide with a bus. As a biological neural network you'll know everything that you take in for the bus accounts for cars, motorcycles, whatever, like big, like travel trucks, mm. right? For example, it took me a long time to get there, but I did. But for the artificial neural network, you'll have to do a different input for the bus, for the car, for the motorcycle, for the truck. And 
I think that's kind of one of the biggest differentiators. And like as a person, if there's an ad for a car on the side of the bus, you're still going to know it's a bus. True. <laughs> like that's that's like a good good example that I I think that maybe an AI would have trouble with. If it's a picture of something on the side of the bus, it might think that it's the picture of the thing potentially. Like if it's not been trained on the idea that a bus could have an ad for something on the side of it, like as a person, it's like that's a bus. AI might be like that's a chicken. That's a car. That's a <laughs> That's yeah, absolutely possible. And and to be again, to be fair to like AI researchers, I'm 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 aware that um object recognition despite this like very brute force nature of AI is getting better to the point where totally. might as well, you know, be recognizing like these different objects and that they're separate. But um but yeah, it's it's uh yeah, classically that's that's certainly a concern. Again, I don't I'm not entirely sure on the um yeah. On the, the latest, except I did read recently that now AI researchers are starting to focus on multimodal inputs. So not only just vision, but vision plus sound plus Ooh. whatever else. And I think that'll be really helpful. And I think that's the direction we need to go. Um, another key difference that I, I looked up today, and I think that's that's interesting, is that, um, well, first of all, yeah, there's so many parallels with how a neural network learns and how, how let's say, humans learn. And in terms of like the learning part, but also the implementation, right? We have these these neuron-like things in the, AN, the artificial neural networks. We have neurons in the biological neural network. But, but one thing is clearly, in quotes, depending on what you believe is better, like one thing can be, do things a lot better than the other, right? Human brains can just do more things and generalize much, much more easily than really any other animal in addition to neural networks. So it's like, I've always been wondering, like, what the hell is the, what's the physical difference between the neural network and, the, and, and biological neural networks? And one difference are, has to do with dendrites. And these neural networks don't really include dendrites in the way that, um, that they're understood today because dendrites today are known to be more active than previously thought. So before people thought they were more passive, today we know that there's, there's, they actually have some activity um, in a non-trivial way. And I found this paper. Yeah. So, like, what does that mean? Like, more active? So, like, instead of, so, like, I guess the idea of it just being like this thing that a signal travels down, it's not just a pipe then. Right, it's not just the so it's people didn't even think signals traveled down the axle uh, down the dendrites for a while. People just thought locally the uh, the the potential had uh, was excited, and then maybe some some piece of that would be felt by the the soma by the cell body. But they actually do have propagation. They can have propagation. Yeah, so that's that's the difference. And um, interestingly, I found this paper where. Uh, people applied a convolutional neural network, I believe, but they designed the network so that they included some architecture just inspired by dendritic trees. And they found that this, this structure outperformed the, the, a particular convolutional network oh, called wow. LENet. Yeah, so this is, I don't know if you want the information for this paper, right? but I'll, I can put that in chat there. Yeah, we can link it too. It's um, like, that's interesting. Huh. And then I, there's a colleague of mine uh, called Xiaojing Wang. Um, I thought he was at, at New York, but and I can't. I couldn't find this paper. But he he looked at this question of you know, for example, when you're learning, when a neural network is learning, you use backpropagation or whatever method to adjust the weights between the neurons. We didn't really talk about that much, but I, I, I'm just going to assume that that people have have heard about you know how how artificial neural <laughs> networks train and learn. So well, maybe. So yeah. Sorry, Glenn. Maybe we should like maybe mention that a little bit, like this idea that like weights as in like the probability the weights is just like the probability something is a thing right is that what you're saying like um it's it's, it's importance it's just the, oh from, it's importance yeah 
Okay. From as think... as from young men, you explain it because he looks like I'm cutting yeah, off I... our guest. That is rude. <laughs> no, you're you're good. I I mean that's however it helps to think about it, and I, and I think you can certainly think about it in terms of importance, um, but purely in terms of like math, I guess. Um, you have you have connections in this in this complicated artificial neural network, in, in particular in these these classic, I guess yeah, in, in really any of these artificial neural networks, you have connections between the layers. So first of all, you have layers. There's an input layer, and then you have a bunch of nodes, which are these perceptrons or or uh, something else in the case of convolutional neural networks. But you have these layers, and then between the layers and between each of these nodes, there's just connections everywhere. Convolutional neural networks tend to have fewer connections, so they're more sparse, and so you can make them bigger. Uh, multi-layer perceptrons, they are densely connected. So you have every, every single node in a given um, layer connects to every other node in the previous and the next. And so you have a ton of parameters. And all of these, I'm calling all of these connections, uh, these are all weights. Okay. okay you, can, you can make so, the weight zero or non-zero or negative. Yeah. So like just visually, I'm just picturing like thumbtacks and like twine, like making connections, like the, the, like the crazy, like the, right. like the person that moving like, trying to like connect a bunch of things you know they're they're in the room they're like i'm convinced something's going on they got thumbtack and the, the twine that's the the connection and like how important that connection is that's your weight right so right, right. You know, yeah exactly your theoretical like thriller thing it's like okay you know here's the here's the killer and like you know here's their you know victim that's gonna have a heavy one like here's the guy he bought a burrito from last tuesday that's gonna have a much lower weight <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> So uh, the learning process, there are algorithms to figure out what, what, how to adjust the weights in what direction, right? So, okay, you do that. And, and to an extent, I mean, the brain does do that more or less. But the difference right now with at least, again, classic like multilayer perceptrons and maybe even convolutional neural networks is that we don't have this, this, the, the basic synaptic properties. For example, synaptic facilitation, synaptic depression, long-term potentiation, these things are incredibly important for learning in biological neural networks. And, and one of my colleagues, Xiaojing Wang, um, I can't, yeah, again, I can't remember where he's at now, but he's, he's looked at some kind of artificial neural networks after incorporating these basic synaptic properties. Um, and, and in short, these synaptic properties, it just means that like a synaptic depression means that whenever the synapse is active, the activity, it, it has, it, it, it affects less on the, the postsynaptic neuron. Facilitation means it, it has a greater effect on the postsynaptic neuron as, as more signals come in, if that makes sense. Sort of. Okay. <laughs> so it, you have a, like a presynaptic neuron, postsynaptic neuron, as the presynaptic, let's say the presynaptic neuron is firing regularly. So that, that's um, the, so it's, it's at the synapse. That's the start of the signal. Start, start of the signal, okay. yeah. So there's, yeah, so it has some axon down which the signal's going and it hits the postsynaptic neuron. And then um, with synaptic depression, the synapse it, with repeated inputs from that axon, um, that the synapse will make the the response of the neuron weaker to these incoming signals, and facilitation will make the response stronger. So these are just two very simple examples of of synapses, biological synapses that I just don't see in in artificial neural networks. Hmm. But uh, my colleague tried putting these in and and. I wish I could find the paper, but what he found is that um, uh, the the network was like it was like less accurate, but it was somehow in some way it was either more robust or it was it could learn faster. Mm. Um, and so it seems like so I like that it's like intuitively very appealing that that 
adding biological properties might make you less accurate, but you can just you can do things maybe faster or maybe more efficiently. Um, the exact hype, the exact conclusion, I, I don't quite remember, but it was it was something it was something like this. So yeah, I, maybe I'll try to find that. Yeah. So so you end up so you learn better, but your accuracy is lower. So like you're not gonna be able to recognize a you know a Asian elephant from an African elephant, but you're gonna be able to learn an elef- what an elephant is without having to see a thousand pictures of an elephant. At a very very <laughs> high level, <laughs> that that's that's sort of right. I think the, at the, a high the, level, the that's sort of right. <laughs> yeah. Because the conclusion was much, much more specific okay. and, and constrained. Than, yeah, I was just, just trying to sum up like uh, my understanding. So, like, because I can't tell the difference yeah. between all these elephants. Some people care a lot. Like, and I know some people who really like elephants, yeah. and I'm like, it's it's gray. It's got a trunk. <laughs> my brain does a lot of that. Yeah, yeah, same. Uh, um, and yeah, it it so you did like. Th- and I think in terms of behaviors, it's like Steve Wozniak said, like, I'll be impressed once we get an AI that can just, that can just make a pot of coffee wherever you put it, right? And right now, that's just not, that's kind of outside the realm of possibility because we're just so limited in, at least in current implementations, we're just so limited in this ability for the AI to generalize. So I think biology has a lot to offer. Um, AI, I wish there was a little more biological interest from AI scientists. Um, and then, and I, and I think that's just, it's only going to help, you know, um, whatever. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's fascinating because we, we just, if we think, if we see an object, even, even if it's one eye, we lose our depth, depth of perception. You see a can of soda on the table, you know, it's a can of soda, you know, how it, how, how much it weighs, you know, how it, how it might taste. You have a whole like history of, of that object. Um, you know, the sound, you know, like just all these different properties, Whereas a lot of AIs is trained on like an image, an image, 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 image. And it just doesn't, you know, there's something about that, that step that just doesn't feel right to me. And I'm not saying this is a novel idea. I think there are people that are thinking about this actively, but that's going to be like the next iteration of AI that's going to be just a lot better. And I'm really looking forward to that. And I think we'll definitely get there. I mean, with how much work and... Um, time all these AI scientists and researchers are putting into this field. Um, I do think in order, and you know, again, this is coming from a non-pro, I do think in order to achieve those things, um, you need to model after everything we've learned today in this episode, you need to model after biology. I, I, and Youngman I, disagrees. <laughs> Plot I, I think, twist. I think it, no, it's it's. I think. I think taking what biology. I think we should understand what biology has to offer. Way better. And then way of use the, the best of best of it. Yeah, as opposed to purely modeling after biology, because we can actually do that already. We can take neuro like uh, a system like the the nematode, and just model all the neurons in the nematode, and then and just, just see what it does. And then it turns out we don't really know. Like we have no idea what the hell's going on. <laughs> It'll do something, but like what you know. So it's like neither useful for AI or biologists, right? Um, we can model, you know, small neural networks with incredible, uh, incredible degree of accuracy, and then and then see some kind of some semblance of biological behavior. But yeah, it's it's a very different question from from AI. Yeah, like nematodes are just these 
listeners, there's these tiny little worms that like they're commonly used as a, a model organism, a model organism in biology. Like I've worked with them, and frankly, I've looked at nematodes like under a microscope alive, and I don't know what they're doing either. I don't know what you gave from, no <laughs> from simulating them. If you can simulate it perfectly, great. You have a nematode. I don't know what that means. Right. Um, and I just want to mention, I, this is a bit tangential, but uh, my favorite insect, it, it's the third smallest wasp, but it's the smallest insect I think that can fly. Uh, and it's, it's wings, it's, it's the size of a paramecium. So we're talking microns. And its wings are look like they're just like very sparse feathers because at that scale, air is like like a, a sludge. Um, in fact, that's why bumblebees don't follow like the same physics as airplanes because at that small scale, it's like water. So air is just so much thicker. But anyways, they have something like 3,000 neurons and they they remove the cell nuclei of the neurons to, to reduce the size even further. Um, and they have something like a hundred thousand synaptic connections. So it's in the realm of like being able to simulate entirely within a computer. But yeah, it's kind of been my like dream to just have a little, it's called Megafragma my Myra Penny. Um, and, and it's, it's my dream to just simulate one of these little mini wasps and just have it pet. Oh my gosh. Holy mackerel. Now, I just would it. that, would that be, in addition to your cat, would you replace your cat with one of these <laughs> artificial mini wasps? No, I hope they like, could coexist. Like, yeah, I mean, it doesn't. It can exist in my computer. It doesn't have to, you know. Which is really interesting that um, uh, we're we're basically at the point of the technology that we can. Um, it's it's like it's a step away, right? But we can hypothetically replace the activity of one neuron in our brain with a computer simulation. Because we, we have powerful enough computers to do that, and then we can just, uh, we just have to take note of where the neuron synapses and then build the correct um, physical connections. Very, very hard to do. You'll end up with lesions that, that, that mess up that part of the brain with today's technology, but you can. But it just leads to this hypothetical of like, oh, I wonder what happened if we replace two neurons instead of one or three or, or 10 or a thousand. And slowly just replace one neuron at a time in your brain with these computer simulated, like perfect reconstructions of the brain. And I don't know, just some food for thought. I have thoughts, but I, I, I want to keep that question open. I think I read a comic like that where someone was like, it was, it was yeah, very joke. science fiction. Yeah, it was like someone was like, I, I have a confession like to the to her to her husband or boyfriend, whatever. He's like, what is it? He goes, she goes, I've replaced every cell in your body with a perfect imitation. Goes, but I, I don't know if he, people have souls, but the creature in front of me doesn't have one. He's like, why? It's like, well, you made, it's like, it's like flashback 10 years. She goes, I got a job in, you know, nanomachinery. And he goes, that's overhyped. <laughs> it's not that funny. I should, but it's just funny. It's like, you, I guess you're saying like you could do that. I don't know why you do that. <laughs> Unless somebody well, made immortality. I, I, I guess, yeah. but I mean, is that, we do not need to delve down, but is that immortality? I don't know. Um, you know, that's not me anymore. If you were to do that slowly and or the rest it? of me somewhere else, I'd still be, if you make a perfect copy of me, I'm still this, whatever, one of the copies. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you make, if you make a, you know, this is a whole philosophical thing that, yeah, I don't want to derail things, but I agree that it's a fascinating <laughs> question. Yeah. Anyways. All I'm right. I'm tired for this. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but you could at least probably imitate a wasp. Interesting. Yeah. We could do nematodes, oh, yeah. no problem. But again, I mean, so. 
I could also have like a million of them on my desk if I wanted to, but why would I do that? <laughs> For fun. <laughs> For fun, I guess. All right. Um. Anyway, yeah, but like, yeah, it's it's ah, oh, jeez, I, I need to stop. But like, can you you know like we had things like Conway's Game of Life mm. way back when. Very simple rules you can make things that kind of look alive. But now we could just have living things in a computer, and and it's like, well, back then, like, why would you even do Conway Conway's Game of Life? It's like, what are you what are you really learning? Um, I know I, people actually learned a lot, but but um, but I don't know. It, it's just fascinating. Um, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, uh, listeners, thank you for listening. And uh, I've, regardless of philosophical debate, um, however much of your brain has been replaced by a computer, we thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening in the distant future, thank you for somehow keeping this podcast alive. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, if you... I'm so, sorry. Sorry to interject. Can I just say? Can I just like mention something that I found fascinating on YouTube? Oh boy. <laughs> uh, there's a channel. Just please. Okay. There, there's a channel called Cool World Worlds um, by a physicist from I think Columbia, but some you know some some top tier institution, and he he has a result where if we never simulate actual consciousness, then the probability that we're a simulation is 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 very low. But if we are in this world able to simulate consciousness, then the probability that we are simulated becomes like the probability flips and becomes very likely that we are simulated. So um, all Bayesian inference, pretty cool statistical methods. Check it out. It's called Cool Worlds. Anyways, that I'll, I'll stop. I'm doing that after this. Thank you. Well, um, thank you so much, everyone, for uh, tuning in for another episode. Youngman, so great to have you back. Um you can check out um, the description of this episode for our social uh, handles. We put out episodes uh, every month. Um, so if you have any ideas, if you're, you know, any feedback for us, feel free to reach out on social. Um, we're happy to kind of just hear from you guys and, and get your input. But thanks so much. Excited to kick off 2024 too. First episode of the year. Starting well, off with a bang. We did release our December episode in 2024 because we got a little bit late on that one. It's okay. Um, That's a secret. <laughs> yeah, and um, uh, social media, I'll try to see if I can link some of my own favorite stuff about AI. There's a, a blog I've followed for a while that um, likes to convince AI to do essentially make fools of itself, which is always fun. So asking for things like a spotless giraffe. Um, it's called AI weirdness. Um, it's... I look at it for a long time but I'll, I'll potentially maybe we'll have a bunch of links in the show notes uh so in the description wherever you're listening to this like pick i'll put all these fun things there catch you guys next time bye